When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Brady McCartney, your host today. I'm joined by Ellen Griffith Spears, author of Rethinking the American Environmental Movement Post-1945, published by Rutledge Press. She is an environmental historian and professor in the Interdisciplinary New College and Department of American Studies at the University of Alabama. Ellen Griffith Spears, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Okay. Uh, So to start, if you would just give us um, a little bit about your background, scholarly background, and how you became interested in this specific topic. Well, I I think the first environmental justice event that I covered um, as a a journalist working at uh, the Southern Regional Council on the quarterly magazine Southern Changes was the 1992 Environmental Justice Conference at Xavier University in New Orleans. This is a regional conference put together by the Southern Organizing Committee for Social and Economic Justice. They expected between three and 500 people and more than 2,000 people showed up. And so we, it was very clear then that this was a, a new phase of the civil rights movement. And um, I went on to um, work with, uh, do an oral history project with some extraordinary women from the Newtown Florist Club. And, African-American women's group that had been together for several decades in Gainesville, Georgia, and had encountered some environmental justice issues. So um, that experience uh, led me to uh, advanced study at Emory University uh, in American Studies and uh, on to Anniston, Alabama, to work on my first book, uh, Baptizing PCBs race, pollution, and justice in an all-American town. Um, and, and then I uh, finished up my PhD program and uh, came to teach at the University of Alabama, uh, where I teach environmental history and policy and ethics in an interdisciplinary program. All right. Uh, before we move past uh, baptized in PCBs, I will put in a plug at the beginning of this interview uh, for others to read that book. <laughs> Though we're not talking about it, uh, the themes are certainly interwoven, I would argue, in this book. Okay. Um, so so this book uh, was published in 2020. Um, so why was it important to you to publish uh, Reconsideration of the U.S. Environmental Movement um, in the post-war period um, at that time or at this time? Well, um, if we remember what was going on in 2020, environmentalists were very busy combating the potentially disastrous consequences of a fiercely anti-environmental presidential administration. Uh, The New York York Times was keeping track for a while, and then eventually the numbers got just too great to count, the numbers of regulations that were being overturned. Um, People in charge at the EPA were they were really trying to dismantle 50 years of, of settled law, uh, things that had made a real difference in uh, clean air and clean water. And of course, we have much more to achieve in environmental protection, but 
the policies that have been implemented 50 years ago had made a real difference in people's lives and our environmental health. So with rethinking the American environmental movement post-1945, I had a goal of chronicling that history of progress, noting, of course, that there were setbacks and failings along the way, but also setting a tone of hope uh, that that people um, have, have made enormous changes in this arena and and that we can keep doing so. Yeah, I, th- I think that's an important point. Um, we we have the sense, uh, I, th- I think, in many of the communities I'm involved in, uh, sort of the environmental communities, um, that we need new law um, to protect the environment or to sort of pursue environmental ends. Um, but the, the laws passed <laughs> in previous generations uh, still have a lot of currency and power um, if they are deployed. Um, so I, I think that is an important thread to sort of uh, identify in, in the history, but also in your text. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that, that, um, that if we implemented the, the existing law, we could, we could get a very long way uh, toward progress. Of course, changes and new reforms are needed. Uh, we need r- more robust toxic substances policy law, for example. But um, we need more laws addressing environmental inequalities, which has been a big theme for me. Um, <clears throat> the other thing I was really trying to do in this book was to show that uh, environmental injustice has deep roots, but uh, environmental justice activism long before it was called that um, also uh, likewise has a long history. Um, and so I was really trying to take an environmental justice lens and turn that uh, on the past um, movements and actions that we think of um, maybe more as social justice, uh, civil rights actions, but that actually had a strong environmental component. Yeah, another important point and another sort of uh, point of connection to an interview that I, I previously did that I've mentioned to you with Chris Wells. Um, the, the environmental justice movement, while we may peg it to the early 1980s, uh, sort of the beginning of that movement, um, environmental justice issues have obviously uh, been at the forefront of other struggles throughout history and certainly environmental injustice, if we want to um, sort of flip the justice angle, uh, has existed uh, since the founding of this country um, through land dispossession. But <laughs> right, you're you're absolutely right about that. And interestingly enough, uh, it was in a conversation with Chris Wells, um, who's it, it did the really great compendium of documentary materials in his book Environmental Justice in Postwar America. Um, that in talking with him, I realized I needed a term for the kind of environmental justice activism that I was describing and. People, some people have called it omitted environmentalism. Other people called it uncounted environmentalism. And it wasn't until I came across an essay uh, by Lonnie Bunch, who um, at that time was, uh, he was the founding director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture. He's now the director of the Smithsonian Institution overall. But um, it was a a short essay. it was called Black and Green, The Forgotten Commitment to Sustainability. And in that essay, Lonnie Bunch talked about unacknowledged actions 
uh, that people had taken, um, things that were forgotten, uh, hidden in plain sight, he said. And so, so that term, lifting up of unacknowledged environmentalism, became an important theme of this book. Indeed, uh, you have anticipated one of my questions. <laughs> um, so to sort of uh, smash two questions into one, and it's a complex one, so please take your time. <laughs> um, so to sort of set the table and uh, define some key terms. Um, so you reference a number of definitions of the environment from Dana Alston to Bill Cronin to Carolyn Merchant. Um, so one, how do you define the environment? Two, how do you define the environmental movement? And three, um, how do you think of environmental environmentalism in relation, I guess, to those two definitions? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think for a long time, uh, people and many people still uh, think of environment and they think you mean the non-human world. They mean, you know, the wilderness, the world outdoors. It's the world of plants and animals. Um, but humans are part of that environment. And uh, with environmental justice, um, activists like Dana Alston uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, um, redefined the term uh, really to, to fully take into account the uh, environments where, the way she framed it was where people live, work, and play. And and that became an important watchword for the movement going forward. Um, it's where people worship, where they go to school. Um, more than 80% of Americans these days live in cities. And so um, if you're thinking only about the wilderness, you're not thinking about the places where most people actually live. And William Cronin, you mentioned, he reinforced that in a very important uh, essay in the mid-90s, The Trouble with Wilderness. Um, And he talked about the need. It was was really heretical to a number of big environmental organizations nationally. You know, we've been working for 35, 40 years trying to get people to pay more attention to the wilderness. And so why are you taking away from that. But he was saying, you know, let's add on, let's make sure that we're talking about the places where people actually, people actually inhabit. So um, perhaps that gets to your, was there another question? Sure, sure. Well, I I think you're, you're sort of pointing at how sort of ideas of wilderness, um, well, helpful, Right, are not fully encompassing of the environment, right? Like exactly. If, yeah. If if we sort of set aside sort of local parks, or we set aside sort of medians on highways and say that that those are not sort of the natural world, then that has impl- implications for how we as humans treat those spaces, right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, and it can lead to things like sacrifice zones, right? Where we say, well, we've designated that. Um, as arguably Anniston, <laughs> Alabama, where you've done uh, some other work, right? That, that that city could be seen, or at least parts of it could be seen as sort of a sacrifice zone for certain kinds of industry. Because if it's not the natural world, we don't necessarily need to provide the environmental protections for it. But I think you are arguing, and William Cronin certainly has, right, that we need to account for sort of all of the world around us because humans rely on the air that we breathe in cities, right? So right. if we're saying the city is not part of the natural world, again, <laughs> uh, it's our habitat, 
So it better be part of the natural world. Otherwise, we may not treat it in a way that leads our species to survive. Exactly. Exactly. And and humans are a part of the natural world. And so our nests that we build, the built environment is part of the world that we need to care for. And uh, so that uh, is is another element uh, of the story. Indeed. And I, I think, again, you're sort of underscoring that humans, we are animals, part of <laughs> the natural world, part of the animal kingdom. But if we have this sense of sort of human exceptionalism, it leads to some places that uh, maybe we don't want to go environmentally if we want our species to survive. That's right. Um, so continuing with this uh, omitted environmentalism thread, um, so you make clear that you thought it was important to include the environmental efforts of, quote, women, workers, indigenous populations, people of color, immigrants um, in this history. Um, so why are these contributions essential to include in a history of the environmental movement? And like, what do you think is lost by excluding them from the historical record? Well, I mean, I think leaving out the marginalized groups really narrows our vision of, of who it is that's that's brought about the changes that we've seen, the positive developments uh, in protecting the environment. Uh, and it also has implications then for who it is that can lead change uh, into the future. So another, another result is leaving out uh, these constituencies sometimes narrows the range of tactics uh, that might be effective. Uh, for example, one example I cite in the book is comedian Dick Gregory. Um, and he joined the Nisqually Indians in Washington state uh, in a fish-in to protest the lack of access to and, and the destruction of native fishing grounds. Well, uh, that protest actually led to a landmark court decision uh, that guaranteed fishing rights uh, and, and even co-management of the spawning grounds um, for the Nisqually people. And so uh, those kinds of alliances are, are uh, really critical to uh, making environmental progress. And if we leave that kind of story out of the picture, uh, then, then people don't understand where these changes came from and, and the kinds of alliances that are necessary to make change in the future. Yeah, that, that sort of focus of um, your book reminded me of Rebecca Solnit's sort of assessment of um, sort of the progressive movement and how the progressive movement is all uh, sometimes um, not great at sort of counting slash remembering the victories. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so quick to sort of point out the next injustice or the failure rather than sort of highlight the progress that uh, the movement has made. So right. I think that's, yeah, that is an Why important not- note to sound. Right. And there, there are other examples. I mean, uh, if you look back at the history of the Montgomery bus boycott and the civil rights movement, 1955. Well, fully five of the eight demands of the Montgomery bus boycott, um, but the, the Montgomery Improvement Association in that era were, were all about uh, environment. Um, uh, representation on the Parks and Re- Recreation Board, um, subdivision for housing, congested areas with no, with inadequate or no fire plugs, lack of sewage disposal, which is a health hazard, 
all, all of these things um, were, were very much environmental issues. Uh, it's unlikely that people at the time would have called themselves environmentalists. This is just on the cusp of conservationists becoming environmentalists. Um, but, but if you look back with an environmental justice lens, you can see very much um, the linkage there. Yes, yes. As, as we discussed, um, some of my work focuses on sort of teasing out the connections between the civil rights movement and the environmental movement. And I, I think you've hit on an important one for sure. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, I, I, I don't know how the environmental movement was sort of introduced to you and your life from sort of a scholarly perspective. Um, but for me, there was always sort of an emphasis on the federal level and, you know, federal environmental laws. Um, and I, I think that was the case because sort of legislative gains and environmental protections um, at the federal level were seen as sort of uh, more powerful they had sort of a bigger reach, um, and those protections, those gains were seen as um, relatively permanent, ironclad. Um, but you obviously, you, you note at the beginning of this book and at the end of this book that we're sort of in a moment when environmental progress um, is being challenged, chipped away at, destroyed. So we, you've already sort of started to touch on this, but like, how do you think we, you know, those of us in this audience, the, the, those readers of yours, like how, how should we think about sort of the progression and regression of the movement's achievements um, in this moment? Mm -hmm. Well, there used to be two kinds of books about uh, environmental um, subjects. One was the heroic moving forward, look at how much we've achieved and, uh, and the other was uh, uh, everything's in decline. Uh, we'll, we're, there's there's um, uh, no permanent gains, and um, but uh, permanent losses. Uh, David Brower, and so uh, I, I think that the scholarship has evolved, and the approach of the movement has evolved really to be seeing that the. Um, it's it's a series of advances and retreats. It's a much more nuanced uh, account and, and a much more um, uh, forward and back motion. And I think a long view requires understanding that uh, because then uh, it's not just a matter of celebrating advances, which I agree with you, we really need to do more, um, but also how to turn around defeats. Um, uh, how to prepare people for the inevitable setbacks, how to regroup, how to try a different approach. Uh, uh, climate advocates, for example, were terribly disappointed, rightly disappointed uh, in 2010 when Congress failed once again to pass uh, meaningful or even modest, it really, it was legislation to respond to the climate crisis. Um, however, what happened as a result uh, activists, even the big national organizations, turned more to local and state organizing. And and so when a, another setback came in, in 2017, when the newly elected president withdrew the U.S. from the Paris Climate Accords, um, more than 1,400 states and localities stepped up and said, we're going to honor the commitment to the terms of the Paris Accords. And so that kind of organizing at the local level um, and state level um, really made, made a significant difference. 
Yeah, that's that's often my answer when I'm asked to not just sort of account for the history of the environmental movement, but when I'm asked to offer uh, suggested actions for how to address environmental issues, I, I really at this point focus on um, what's happening at the state level, the county level, um, sort of the city level. Just because I think you're right, a lot of the uh, action is there, but also the ability to have your voice heard, to contribute to those um, those legislative processes is is actually present in a way that at the federal level, um, I, I believe you're referring to Waxman-Markey, uh, the bill that, that failed during the beginning of the Obama administration. Um, you know, you, you have you have those windows, right? Those uh, referencing, I guess, the Overton window, right? Where <laughs> the ability to pass legislation that didn't seem possible, right? That window opens, um, but those windows close quite quickly. Um, and if if we have been paying attention to the Biden administration, right? There was a very brief window when anything could have passed, um, and now we are sort of in a holding pattern. Um, so, you know, you can go. And not, not to highlight just like a California, sort of a quote unquote liberal bastion. But if if you try to impact environmental policy at the state level and you choose the right state, which actually has significant sort of impact, you can make a significant difference. So I, I think you're right to sort of highlight that. Um, so staying on this sort of policy, politics sort of angle, um, I think anybody who studied the environmental movement really has to contend with sort of the shift in the Republican Party and its sort of broad stance on environmental issues. Um, so, so what do you think explains the change in environmental views um, and policy within the Republican Party, you know, especially at the federal level and, and within sort of the party's conservative wing? Uh, and, you know, from, I would argue, from sort of the mid-60s to the present, maybe you date it, you know, slightly differently. But what accounts for this shift, if you think a shift has actually occurred? Well, I think a shift has definitely occurred. I mean, um, the, the failure of bipartisanship that's tearing apart the country right now um, and denying really even common sense reforms, um, that was not always the way things were. And um, for people uh, who that's been their main experience, I think it's important to tell the story uh, that, uh, I mean, it was Nixon, uh, a staunch Republican who, who launched the EPA in 1970, reorganized uh, the executive branch in order to bring together uh, the different uh, functions that needed to, to be brought together to, to protect the environment. Uh, it was bipartisan majorities who passed the, um, the Clean Air Act, the National Environmental Policy Act, the Clean Water Act, the Toxic Substances Control Act of 1969, all up through the 70s, a really Endangered Species Act, uh, uh, lots of important environmental legislation. It was never uh, as robust on the Republican side as it was on the Democratic side, but but they were always bipartisan majorities, um, and and I think the resistance was always present uh, in uh, in the early 1970s. Um, certain conservatives got together and were trying to figure out how to block this legislation, which they regarded as uh, hostile to business, uh, rather than um, actually supporting a business climate uh, for the future, and and um, 
And in the Reagan years, that grew even stronger. Um, Reagan appointed people to several executive posts that uh, were uh, hostile to uh, environmental protection. Uh, people like uh, Ann Gorsuch Burford at the EPA and um, and the people remember Scott Pruitt. She was sort of the Scott Pruitt of the Reagan years. Uh, Scott Pruitt was the uh, initial appointee uh, by uh, in the Trump administration. Worth worth pointing out, if I may interject, I said I wouldn't, but Ann Gorsuch, uh, I believe the mother of uh, Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch. That is correct. Uh, and um, she actually married um, the, Burford, the head of the Bureau of Land Management, all through the Reagan, both Reagan administrations. Um, and so, um, yes, that's true. Uh, so resistance was always to environmental protection was always present. It was often linked with this kind of state's rights. Um, conditions are different in our state, and we should be able to say what the rules are here. Um, interestingly enough, there was an, a wing of business that was um, often supportive, uh, not necessarily for the same reasons, but because business likes to have a predictable climate in which to do their work. So they, business leaders were interested in having uniform laws um, across the country. Um, but that really stepped up. The opposition really stepped up around climate issues. You have a, a group like uh, formed in the uh, early 90s, the Global Climate Coalition which sounds like um, they must be for all the right things. But as it turned out, uh, that group, which was a um, brought together the big three automakers, uh, several uh, oil companies, um, was actually uh, very much opposed to government measures that would mitigate climate warming. Um, uh, ExxonMobil was part of that group. And of course, they had, in, we learned much later from the LA Times that uh, ExxonMobil had um, internal documents that showed them that in fact, the, uh, the climate was warming and um, still contributed lots of money to the Global Climate Coalition and various uh, advertising campaigns that denied that it was a fact. A factor. So, um, so there was very vigorous and robust, uh, and we've seen how how much that opposition to the basic science around climate has um, set us back in addressing climate change. Really, uh, if James Hansen, uh, NASA scientist, in 1988. Uh, was very clear with Congress that um, global warming was uh, uh, happening and going to be a much, much larger problem. Um, and, um, and so we've been set back for, for more than 30 years from really, really addressing it uh, by the, the anti-environmental denialist efforts. Indeed. Uh, w worth pointing out, since you mentioned the uh, the auto companies, sort of the, the big three, um, <laughs> that I believe Tesla now has a larger market uh, cap than all three combined, at least last I checked. That may have changed. 
in in recent weeks with with uh, our friend Elon Musk um, trying to buy Twitter. Um, I know that's had some impacts on Tesla's sort of market cap, but um, yeah, worth worth pointing out, right? That some of those decisions made in earlier generations in the '90s, for example, uh, have not necessarily uh, aged well. Um, as we as a, as a society have been sort of forced to contend with changes in the climate and also changes in sort of what customers want from companies and products. So, uh, yes, you do not have to comment on that. <laughs> uh, so, so, so you've started to sort of tease out the different strands of um, anti-environmental thought. Um, could could you talk a bit more about um, some of the other major sort of actors, institutions perpetuating the anti-environmental thought, um, maybe uh, focusing on some of the, the think tanks and sort of the, I would argue, sort of junk science uh, research institutes? Well, um, we, we were talking about the early 70s when a lot of this legislation was passed and really um, many of these uh, efforts um, did begin uh, during those years. Um, you have the, the big um, think tanks on the right that are writing briefing papers. Um, people came together, conservatives came together. I, I have a little side note here. I once had the good fortune to work with uh, Reverend William Sloan Coffin, uh, the Yale uh, theologian and um, uh, I was director for a while of Peace Action, and I, I got to uh, work with him. And he said, I remember the era when conservatives conserved. <laughs> and, uh, and so it, it really the, this departure uh, of, uh, from, from protective policies uh, is notable, but it begins at least as early uh, as the Goldwater um, Johnson election in 64, but there's a real focus when these laws start passing in the early 1970s. And there's a meeting at which Lewis Powell uh, ta- is giving advice to conservatives about what they uh, ought to do about the rise in environmental uh, legislation. And um, he says, you know, the, the environmental groups have gotten together and they have all these legal firms. You should form legal firms yourselves that um, that defend against these um, measures that are uh, limiting states' rights. And so you have the formation of quite a number of um, the Mountain States Legal Foundation, for example. James Watt came out of that as one of the Reagan-era uh, appointees. Um, and a number of policy and legal foundations all across the country. So there's a real infrastructure built with think tanks and legal arms uh, in the early 1970s that have continued forward um, to, um, to try to, to block the impact of successful environmental legislation and, and hold back uh, the, the growth of, of new pol- the, the implementation of new policies. Uh, worth noting, uh, Lewis Powell would later <laughs> become a Supreme yeah. Court justice, perhaps. It was only, only a year later. There you go. Nixon perhaps that played a role. <laughs> to the Supreme Court. That's correct. Where he met with William O. Douglas, who was one of the most uh, staunch advocates for the environment. Actually, I'm not sure a Supreme Court justice would do this these days, but actually led a couple of pro-environment marches uh, during his tenure on the court. 
Well, uh, I think our current justices like to pretend that uh, the court is apolitical, but I, I think given uh, what we've seen in recent weeks uh, with leaked opinions and whatnot, uh, we, we can pretty easily argue against that. <laughs> but you do not need to comment on that. <laughs> um, so sort of shifting a little bit. Um, so we have the environmental movement. Uh, those of us who spend our days thinking about sort of the environmental movement obviously have recognized that there's an environmental justice movement and they are not the same necessarily. Um, so, so why do you think the environmental justice movement um, was so necessary? What was it responding to that the environmental movement um, was perceived as not responding to? And I guess, you know, the deeper you read into this literature, I, I start to wonder, like, is there an alternative reading of the early history of the environmental movement um, that if better known, if better appreciated, um, would have made clear that environmental justice uh, concerns were a part of the environmental movement from the beginning, maybe not as emphasized, maybe not as important to all constituents, but certainly I, I think you can find strands of environmental justice in the early environmental movement that were pretty prominent. Right. Well, if we take that latter question first, um, I, I think that if you go back really to before the nation's founding, as you mentioned at the outset, that uh, that you can find things that are very much, um, if, if you think of this environmental justice uh, as fundamentally the um, just relationships between people and the land, people and their environs, uh, then there you see all kinds of ways uh, Native Americans who are fighting for fishing rights and fighting for um, hunting grounds and fighting to just maintain the capacity to have a subsistence living, uh, then you definitely see uh, a, um, a deep history there to, to draw on. And um, the, there are examples I give in the book of Cherokee women who are talking to their compatriots who are going to be negotiating with the white uh, colonists and they are urging people to um, to stand firm to protect the rights to the land and so those fundamental things um, are, are you know have a, have a deep history um, certainly um, African Americans enslaved persons whose daily lives brought them in very close proximity to nature, um, were, have long fought uh, for equity and, and justice in relation to uh, their, their relationship to, to the land. And so uh, you see a big move during Reconstruction, for example. Uh, Frederick Douglass talks about uh, seeking refuge in the land and, and the importance of the land for uh, newly freed persons. Uh, so yes, there's a long history. There's a lot of good scholarship now emerging uh, about this. Um, um, Kimberly Smith's um, African American Environmental Thought is one um, one was a lovely book by by Melvin Dixon, Ride Out the Wilderness, that analyzes uh, various 
uh, African-American writers and their ideas of, about nature and land. And so we can look back uh, at that. Uh, but the first question that you were asking there about um, why, why do we need an environmental justice movement um, is, um, is borne out in part um, at some events that take place uh, in the uh, 19, early 1980s, I think, you could trace this back to a number of different moments, but the Warren County PCB landfill fight, uh, which took place around 1982, uh, is one of the moments that people point to in the history of the environmental justice movement where these concerns uh, really came to the fore. And SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the civil rights organization that Martin Luther King founded with other clergy in the late 1950s, um, is a big supporter. Uh, Reverend Lowry and Mrs. Lowry go from Atlanta up to Warren County uh, the, to, to protest uh, the dumping of uh, PCB contaminated soil from all over the state of North Carolina uh, in this um, right next to a majority, an African-American neighborhood in, in Warren County, North Carolina. So that's a moment that people point to. So one of the drivers of the movement is the recognition of the inequality that, that takes place. And all through the 1980s, you have a, a government accounting office report that comes out in 1983, and you have the Toxic Waste and Race report in 1987 from the um, United Church of Christ Commission on Racial Justice. Uh, Reverend Ben Chavis um, is leading that um, section of the work at that stage. Um, Charles Lee helps to write that report, and he goes on to become um, a leader in the, uh, office, the leader in the Office of Environmental Justice at the EPA. And so we um, see in the early 90s, um, environmental groups come together at the People of Color Summit, and they're protesting some very specific things. Um, one is the lack of staff of color in major national environmental organizations. Um, but even more than the staffing issue, they're looking at what are the concerns that you care about? What are the issues that you're fighting for? Um, are you just looking at, like we talked about, wilderness issues or charismatic uh, animal species? Um, what about human environmental health? And so that focus of the work becomes a, a, a major reason why the environmental justice movement has uh, is so needed. Indeed. Uh, so you, you're sort of referencing, but not, not quite using this term yet, uh, but you, you refer to environmental citizenship in the book. And, and I'm wondering if you could describe how environmental citizenship was distributed unequally during this, this post-war period. You've, you've certainly referenced a couple of examples, but maybe if there are other sort of ways um, that the distribution was unequal that you would like to highlight. Well, I mean, you can see it in urban areas as well as these rural settings that I've just been talking about. But um, uh, some great scholarship is coming out now about the uh, role of groups like the Black Panthers, who get prim primarily remembered um, as, um, you know, uh, they were portrayed by uh, COINTELPRO and various government 
agencies, but actually did an enormous amount of work um, on um, local uh, food programs, uh, breakfast programs in neighborhoods, uh, cleanup programs in cities. And so um, it, community control was a big theme of much of that work, uh, that communities needed to have a voice to be able to exercise their voice, to exercise political power. Uh, that's really what the Black Power, an important part of what the Black Power slogan was about, was was about having the power to determine, to self-determine one's environment, one's place in the in the political world. And so those are all questions of citizenship. What are the rights that people exercise? Um, part of the debate about the National Environmental Policy Act was, would there be enshrined in it a right to a healthy environment? And of course, the law stopped short of that, but people haven't stopped short of fighting, continuing to fight for that. Um, and I think that's, that's part of what is meant. Um, when people talk about environmental justice, they talk about uh, eliminating the disparities in where hazardous sites, that's often what people think of first, but it's also where are the amenities located? What are the procedural guarantees that people will be able to participate in the process, that people will have the right to know uh, what contaminants um, may be raining down on their neighborhood. And, and all, that's a, f a fundamental um, tenet of the environmental movement overall, certainly something that Rachel Carson emphasized in her 1962 book, Silent Spring, is the, the right to know um, what people, um, what people's lives uh, put them in contact with in terms of of hazardous chemicals. That was her main focus, but it's a broader issue. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> you, you don't know if, I should say, if you do not know what you're being exposed to, right? How do you know how to live? How do you know how to respond to companies or governmental policy that allows certain people to flourish and other people to maybe contend with these environmental injustices? Um, so pretty pretty critical, I would argue. And I, I think you've also helped me sort of clarify um, some of my own thinking in that if, if we think of biodiversity as a piece of the environmental movement, but we sort of exempt humans from that biodiversity, right? You, it leads you to different places. But if we are a part of that world, part of uh, biodiversity, right, then allowing all humans to flourish regardless of the environment, acknowledging that we all have a role sort of in this larger ecosystem, then you would want everyone to, <laughs> to have the same environmental citizenship and have, you know, the not to be exposed to some of the toxics you've written about, for example, right? And I, th I think, again, it's sort of rethinking, uh, <laughs> which seems apropos, uh, humans sort of relationship to this broader sort of environmental concept um, or this biodiversity concept, right? If, if we imagine ourselves as part of this natural world and place ourselves in it, not outside of it or not sort of, um, you know, with dominion over it or stewardship over it, but actually a part of it, it, it just leads you to a different place where environmental justice is just sort of, you know, human rights or, you know, human flourishing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's another component to all of this, too, and that is a gendered component. 
and one of the things that recent scholars have really been pointing people towards is understanding uh, the role of bodies. You know, we think of our bodies as discrete, impermeable, but actually we live in a permeable relationship with the world around us. Uh, and so there's a lot of wonderful scholars, and Auntie Langston is one, uh, Toxic Bodies, uh, it's her book. Um, uh, Linda Nash, um, Inescapable Ecologies, uh, talking about these issues. Uh, Stacey Alimo, other scholars are really um, highlighting some of the ways in which we think about um, bodies in, in relation to, to our surroundings. And that's an environmental justice issue as well. Yeah, I, it seems obvious once you say it, once you think about it. But for again, because we've placed sort of humans outside of uh, the wilderness, outside of the environment in, in certain ways, right? You don't think of, or some people don't think of sort of the environmental impacts on the human body even though it's it's quite clear, right? If if you pay attention to sort of the rates of cancer, why why are rates of cancer increasing throughout this country, but also in specific places? Well, you can't necessarily draw sort of a, a straight line and connect. You you can at least start to wonder, you know, for example, in Utah or Nevada or New Mexico, right, where there was a certain kind of weapons testing and a certain exposure to radiation, you can at least wonder what the connection is to the human body and how that sort of is impacted by the environment that they live in that we could also just call their habitat, you know? Right, right. And some of these exposures, we do know quite clearly uh, the implications. Uh, um, the, the, the biggest, uh, people think of Three Mile Island as the biggest nuclear disaster in American history, but uh, it's, the, it's the biggest reactor disaster, but the, the biggest nuclear disaster was actually the Rio Puerco River uh, mine, uranium mining spill. And um, Native American women were very active in uh, fighting the uh, downstream health effects uh, that happened uh, as a result of uh, uranium mining and then, and that uh, horrific uh, spill into the water supply, which not only provided drinking water, but also irrigated farms in that area. And so, um, you know, there, there are lots of examples where uh, environmental injustice um, uh, persists over time. It's, it's not um, just limited to a uh, momentary crisis. Yes, I think that is uh, the subject of Rob Nixon's slow violence book uh, for listeners who are interested. In, yeah, yeah. Thinking through that sort of, yeah, the sort of slow unfolding of environmental injustice uh, with deep implications for humans and their communities, our communities. And that was a guiding concept for me, and I think has become a guiding, he's a literary scholar, uh, but uh, that has become a, a guiding uh, principle in a number of disciplines uh, as a way to think about and understand um, uh, the, the nature of, of pollution and its effects. Um, and uh, you have uh, people like... Um, Yohara Williams talking, uh, even making the extension of that um, to think about the ways in which um, the uh, 
crim criminalization of urban space, uh, he says, um, is increasingly uh, recognized as a question of environmental justice, just access to safe spaces in which to live, in which to be. Uh, and so that's uh, another way to think about uh, environmental injustice and, uh, and to think about uh, the, the various campaigns, Black Lives Matter campaigns and others, uh, as a, uh, a demand for, for safe spaces in which to live. Yeah, the the intersectionality of the environmental justice movement, I think, is is one of I think the strongest, at least for me, strongest reasons why I think it needed to exist uh, outside of the environmental movement. Not to say that the environmental movement wasn't intersectional in some ways, but um, I just think the environmental justice movement has upped the ante in a significant way, in a way that was just essential if environmental issues were going to have currency in communities outside of sort of the, uh, I guess, the dominant communities within the environmental movement. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> so so uh, it, we're, we're starting to wind down, um, but I, I, while this book is focused on the United States, um, you certainly reference sort of the global environmental movement and sort of connections. Um, so I'm wondering if, if there's specific connections during this history uh, or during this time period that you want to highlight, um, sort of thinking through, again, sort of the interplay between sort of, you've referred to this concept of, uh, you know, a movement of movements, but also sort of moving beyond sort of national borders and even continental borders, you know, what, what connections are significant during this time period? Well, I mean, the conservation movement um, predating World War II was really, uh, international from the start, transcended national boundaries from the beginning. Um, ecosystems, I mean, air, water, uh, weather, the climate, obviously, don't, they don't respect political boundaries. And so um, there are many ways in which um, historian Richard Grove wrote about this, uh, that uh, in green imperialism, the idea that um, in a way, conservation emerged as an idea uh, from the colonial encounter um, with indigenous practices in, in other parts of the globe. And so today, it, you know, climate change is front and center as the global uh, environmental issue. Um, and we recognize that practices in one part of the world affect everyone else. Uh, the fact that um, U.S. Um, standards of living result in um, much greater in CO2 emissions, uh, other uh, greenhouse gases emissions than other parts of the world um, is, has a disproportionate impact uh, on the rest of the world's people. So um, global inequality is really height, heightened uh, rather than reduced um, as we see increasing globalization taking place uh, in the period since World War II and especially since 1970. Uh, we see this exponential rise um, in industrialization, uh, in uh, travel, uh, in shipping, um, you know, new technologies, uh, container shipping industry, uh, uh, all takes off in terms of uh, the kinds of uh, impacts that are being felt from fossil fuels, for example. 
So um, at the same time, we have lots of international agreements, um, some under the auspices of the UN and others. Uh, one of the important ones uh, is the, um, the um, Basel Convention on Transboundary Waste that says that um, they can't just willy-nilly dump waste from the developed world, from Europe and the U.S. Uh, in poor countries and, and Africa. Now, the U.S. has never signed on to that agreement officially, uh, but it's a recognition that um, global inequality um, has has been present when you're, when you're talking about environmental concerns, that there is global environmental injustice. Um, some people who've highlighted that, uh, Ramachandra Gupta, Don uh, um, martinez Elier, uh have talked about environmentalism of the poor and um, how that uh, has impacted uh, people in uh, less industrialized countries. So uh, lots of global implications and lots of global organizing going on uh, now, especially around climate. Indeed. Um, and before moving on from Richard Grove, I'll say one, rest in peace, but two. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, he is one of those environmental historians that I, I don't know in your training if, if he was prominent, but I, I had to discover him for, for myself. And I, I still feel like he is underappreciated uh, some of that early work. But even throughout, you know, his career, he's just writing about things in a way that feels very sort of 2022 to me. But he was he was doing it, you know, in the late 1980s, early 1990s. You know, green imperialism comes out in 95, right? That's 27 years ago. And yet when I found that book, I was like, oh, he already wrote the dissertation I was thinking about. So I need to move on. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's really wonderful when people come along who um, just reshape your thinking. And, and that is he's a, he's a good example. Yeah, I, I suspect his his work will uh, find audiences for many generations. Uh, I don't think don't think the sun has set it on the relevance of it. That's for sure. Um, so so thinking about future generations or even present day generations. Um, so so what do you think the climate justice movement can learn from its various antecedents, whether the environmental movement, the environmental justice movement? Um, I, you certainly reference, you know, the Sunrise Movement in this book and, and, and some other sort of, uh, you know, climate-oriented, climate justice movements that are getting off the ground. But are, are there specific lessons that you think this movement should learn? Obviously, it's, you know, movements are always complex and, uh, you know, disparate and not necessarily a singular sort of collective. But, but what lessons could this climate justice movement, however we sort of envision it, learn? Well, I mean, I think we're learning things from this movement. Um, young people have always made an enormous difference. Certainly that was true in the civil rights movement with SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and other formations, the Black Power Movement. Um, but young people have made a real difference and are continuing to. Uh, you have the Juliana plaintiffs. These are the young people who've come forward with a lawsuit against the U.S. government saying you're not protecting us and our future. Uh, now, they've been stymieing at very po various points in the courts, but they're, they're not giving up. Um, and uh, young people have made a huge difference uh, in divestment from fossil fuels campaigns, for example. Um, 
these and these figures are probably surpassed by now, but um, campus groups uh, encourage the divestment of academic institutions and foundations and others to the tune of more than $50 billion from fossil fuel companies. Uh, and so that's a kind of meaningful um, impact uh, that that is really making a difference. Um, there are organizations like the Indigenous Environmental Network, which uh, has a global reach. Um, some of the recent work I've done looked at um, the transboundary movement between the U.S. and Canada and all the work that's been done on the pipeline campaigns. And I, so I think um, building uh, alliances is certainly a message from the, the long environmental justice movement, but it's also a message that's being played out and practiced uh, by the um, water protector, um, climate justice, uh, anti-pipeline movement uh, in the U.S. and Canada and beyond. And so uh, I, th I continuing to learn things from these organizations uh, about uh, how it is they um, go about uh, democratic decision making uh, using uh, more se more decentralized models than have been used in the past. Uh, I think those are uh, important developments. Um, organizations like 350.org, um, Bill McKibben and others uh, founded, um, and now has branches. I, I'm in the you know. Uh, more than 150 countries, uh, connections with people in, in all those places. Um, and so uh, consistently working at uh, making those kinds of um, ties, uh, going to international meetings, um, attending the conference of the parties, uh, implementing the UN framework on climate change each year, uh, pushing for U.S. adherence to the Paris Climate Accords and, and other international agreements. So um, uh, I think of learning from the past is important, but also um, watching how it is these new formations are changing and shifting and uh, addressing setbacks in, in new ways with new organizing strategies. Pretty exciting. Absolutely. Um, I was I was doing some research uh, with a professor at the University of Florida, and I was asked to sort of try to um, quantify the reach of the Extinction Rebellion, uh, sort of a, I guess you could call them a radical climate justice uh -huh. group, uh -huh. um, and specifically sort of focusing on um, non-Western settings, you know, try to figure out what their reach was. And I was amazed at how many different chapters there were in like tiny countries in Africa. Like we're not talking about South Africa. We're talking about, you know, like Cameroon and these kinds of, you know, smaller countries and then all throughout Latin America. Um, and I, at, at a certain point, I, I just sort of had to stop the research and say, Hey, there's something here. And <laughs> like, I need to stop compiling this because like, I can just say unequivocally, there is a lot of movement. There is a significant presence here. Um, so we don't need to sort of question whether there is the answer is yes. But now the question is like, how deep is their engagement? Like, what are they up to? Um, but the presence is absolutely there. Um, but we've given several book recommendations today, but uh, my what I'm reading right now is Paolo's Diaspora, um, 
by Quito Swan. It's uh, Black Internationalism and Environmental Justice. And this um, des uh, describes the uh, work of uh, Paolo Camara Cafango and uh, internationally uh, in um, Oceania. He's a Bermudan by birth, uh, but he worked internationally in uh, Oceania and Africa and as well as the U.S., uh, was uh, trailed by authorities in many countries, uh, but really uh, worked uh, as a, an environmentalist and, and black power advocate. Um, somebody people, maybe many people haven't heard of before this book. Um, and so I think uh, kind of looking at that uh, global reach of the things that aren't U.S. centered that are going on, the point you're making, I think is really important. Yeah, another reason to be hopeful, right? If you get out of your yeah. own context and you realize how much is going on elsewhere um, yes. and how the U.S. is not the center of this universe <laughs> or this conversation. Right, right. Um, so final question. Um, you, you, you seem to be uh, a, a scholar who sort of puts out a book every, you know, six to seven years and it has a deep impact. So well, I'm wondering you. what you are working on now. Well, um, you know, my new project uh, is actually History of Environmental Activism in the U.S. South. And um, so many of the books that cover the national story um, pay, can't scant attention to uh, what's going on in the southern states. I mean, there's some iconic things. I mentioned Warren County. That ends up in, in every survey. But uh, Adam Rome acknowledged actually in his uh, Genius of Earth Day book that there was a week of Earth Day, Earth Week events in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, on the first Earth Day in April 1970. Um, but a lot of the chronologies focus on New England or they focus on the Plains states or they focus on the American West. And so even even in my own, even in this book, in rethinking, I uh, had to leave out stories that I wanted to tell. And so just due to space. And so. Um, whether or not uh, activist work is always reflected in the uh, uh, responses by state legislatures or by state environmental agencies, um, there's been a robust amount of, of activism in, in the southern states. And at times, that activism has pushed federal policy. And so, um, and, and it's another way to highlight the um, significance and importance of a, a broad understanding of environmental justice um, applying that, that lens. And so uh, things like how the Oak Ridge, Tennessee Environmental Peace Alliance has worked to try to um, make lives safer around the nuclear weapons plant or how the Highlander Research and Education Center, which is known for its labor and civil rights organization, uh, but also ran STP workshops, stop the pollution workshops um, for local people, local groups around the region. Um, or another example uh, is the women in Pensacola, Florida, who organized uh, to uh, uh, win relocation for their neighbors in the Mount Dioxin fight. So, so there, there are just a lot of stories um, that uh, I think need to be told that, that haven't been brought together in one place um, and, and looked at in a, in a more thematic, thematic way. There's some excellent collections, edited collections, which focus on different stories, but my, I envision this as a, a narrative history.
I find often the most uh, radical places are the ones that are on the margins or uh, are omitted from histories. And we can talk whether that's intentional or just because, um, you know, the progress is maybe not as significant or, you know, maybe there are other biases um, that play a role. But I, I think of, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Jessica Wils- Wilkerson's work, Um wrote a book called to live here you have to fight how women uh how women led um what is it how women led Appalach- appalachian movements in, uh, for social justice and i think she, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she clearly argues how radical that space was and how women often poor women often women of color um just were instrumental to any progress and often worked outside of governmental systems, outside of sort of corporate um, systems or even traditional sort of organizing activism, but, you know, made significant uh, contributions. Yeah. People like Judy Bonds in the um, uh, anti-mountaintop removal campaign, uh, for example, against the coal industry um, is another good example well, I have a feeling we could keep talking for hours. Uh, but Ellen Griffith Spears, I thank you for joining me today. And uh, this concludes another episode of the New Books uh, Podcast Network. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. <laughs>